You're listening to Build for Impact, brought to you by MarketScale, with your host, Daniel Heward. Hi, everybody. This is Daniel Heward, your host for Build for Impact. I'm here today, joined by uh, a friend, colleague, um, collaborator that I have great respect for. And we've done a whole bunch of stuff to, together um, in the green building world. Uh, our guest today is Jeremy Sigmund. Uh, Jeremy is currently an independent consultant working on sustainable and resilient buildings, infrastructure, and cities. Uh, Jeremy was with USGBC as staff, uh, and his last spot as staff was uh, as a director for technical policy. And uh, Jeremy graciously invited me to be on his advisory committee when he was at Oxford University uh, working on a on a on his degrees there. So, without further ado, Jeremy, welcome. How are you? I'm doing all right. Thank you for having me on the show, Daniel. Great to talk to you. Yeah, it's really great to catch up, especially considering our COVID situation and our lack of being able to run into each other in person. Yeah, I think we, we would have seen each other probably more recently otherwise, but I'm glad to do it on the phone. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think we would have caught up. Uh, well, you probably would have taken a break during semesters and we would have caught up over the summer at, at one of the numerous events that we would have both um, been attending or presenting at. So in, in, in Bill for Impact, Jeremy, we talk about our four pillars that I established um, back in uh, September of 19, about a year ago. Um, and those pillars include sustainability, resiliency, material transparency, and wellness. So I know that we've both collaborated a lot in the sustainability world. So I'm going to hand the floor back to you with the question, your thoughts on sustainability. Uh, you know, what got you involved in it? It's uh, genealogy. And where do you think we are? And where do you think you were going? Well, I'm happy to um, jump into that. It's certainly been a defining uh, characteristic of my, uh, not just my career, but also some of my social um, social brand, I guess, if you will. Anybody who's known me since uh, probably high school time, uh, if not before, would know me as a somebody who's been uh, pretty keen on sustainability. I think I, I first really got involved um, uh, as a student activist and among a number of things like getting people to think about um, recycling and waste management or uh, transportation um, and uh, carpooling and things like that, you know, things that you can do sort of in a, in a, in a school and high school setting. I ended up uh, working with a team of students and we planned an Earth Day actually in the year 2000, which was my graduating year. Um, and, uh, you know, we thought we did a good job. We had a solar guy come in who was a graduate, you know, some 20 years before and brought some solar panels and powered our, you know, our, our event. Um, who knows, a few hundred people might have showed up and we thought it was probably the biggest thing that ever happened on, a, on an Earth Day in our little town outside New York City. And the, uh, the thought there was... Um, uh, now that we've we've done that, can we we should really go see what the real Earth Day is all about? So we got a, a group of I don't know ten students or so onto the train, and we headed down to um, Battery Park, 
at the southern tip of Manhattan, which is where Earth Day 2000 was taking place uh, in a much greater magnitude. <laughs> and uh, really got to see a much clearer sense of what the you know then fledgling sustainability industry and uh, community was all about. And that's where I started shaking some hands, picking up some business cards and made my very first introductions to a solar energy company that I still keep in very close touch with and um, and worked for for several years named Alt. Alt uh, well, at the time it was Alternative Power, now Alt Power, a uh, solar energy contractor in New York City. So that was uh, really the very beginning. Way cool. And you know, Alt Power has done some great stuff. Um, you touched down on Earth Day. And, you know, Dennis Hayes, who I absolutely adore and I really cherish any time I get a chance to dialogue with him. And he's just an amazing guy, an amazing influence. And, you know, we've ran into a, a bunch of people um, through through the green building world that sort of re reframe and refocus our efforts on on making sure that we keep an eye on the big picture. Um, you know, so I think that the world of sustainability is in a good place now. In in really, what we've been able to do is sort of expand. And I know that you and I have had a bunch of dialogue about resiliency, and and the importance that we need to consider there. Uh, you know, Canada has written this into their codes that you have to have a response for resiliency with new, within new projects. And you've had a really good opportunity to get some global perspective, your thoughts on, on resiliency and people looking at it on a global perspective. And you could even touch down on the water research that you've done. Well, I have a, a hundred things to say on all these topics. So, um, let me see if I can transition and segue. So I've had a really nice opportunity to focus in on resilience at a national scale um, in the United States, um, having uh, run the the first of now several um, uh, resilient cities summits, uh, which was a partnership between the U.S. Green Building Council, my employer at the time, uh, the National League of Cities, and the Urban Land Institute. Um, it was a really wonderful window um, into. The, the contemporary challenges that uh, that cities across the U.S. Um, are facing when it comes to what really makes them resilient. Um, and the number of shocks that they have had to deal with in the past seem to only be growing as we introduce new, um, new extremes and new frequencies of threats um, due to a changing climate, speaking back again of sustainability. Um, and so it was a really fascinating window into that world to really understand what some of the, the core concerns were, whether it was related to, um, uh, you know, who, who can ultimately be resilient to any uh, type of shock, especially if they don't have the resources to even think beyond the next paycheck. So there's an equity component um, within resilience uh, through and through. It's one of the core things that uh, one of the uh, organizations on which I serve on their board, um, the uh, uh, Emerald Cities Collaborative uh, tends to think about is the, is the impact of sustainability on 
um, the lowest income uh, and the minorities uh, in the in the very communities that we're trying to green and improve. And ultimately, is any of this stuff sustainable or resilient if it doesn't actually uplift uh, those who uh, really need need our help? Um, so yeah, so when it, I guess when it comes to resiliency, I think it really does tie nicely into your other pillar, Daniel, um, in sustainability. You know, that first project that I started working on when I worked for Alt Power um, back in 2000 was the Solaire Building, which um, was the world's first green residential high rise. It was one of the very early lead projects and one of the first projects that started to think about um, this this uh, cascading series of risks that fall outside the what we typically at the time anyway and um, and still traditionally today tend to focus on within the microscope of of our risk evaluation for projects um, and thinking about uh, water and energy and equity and uh, community connectivity in ways that were well ahead of its time um, uh, for really buildings uh, in that era. And so that's how I got introduced to um, the U.S. Green Building Council in the first place. It's how I got introduced to the concept that we can do a heck of a lot more with a building than just think about it's um, you know slapping some renewable energy on the side, and of course, ensuring um, that the building that you're working with in the first place is also efficient. Um, but also thinking about you know what happens, especially in a place like that, downtown Manhattan, during uh, an event like Hurricane Sandy where people actually might need to shelter in place uh, and rely on a, a set of community infrastructure um, that may be failing due, due to either foreseen or unforeseen consequences. Uh, you know, we just went through um, uh, a similar uh, for force storm just this summer um, called Hurricane or Tropical Storm Isaias. Uh, a difficult to pronounce name, but um, but one that hit New York and the New York area really hard, probably just about as hard as Sandy. But what's interesting is that it was wind and not water um, that really drove the damage this time. And if you go back to New York City and all these like low service uh, utility connections that were flooding and uh, causing major power outages, um, you didn't have that problem with wind because the city was designed to withstand wind and the all the electric electric services are are essentially underground not not entirely but largely underground whereas you move outside the city and you started to recognize that wind was actually a much greater threat uh than rising water um because down trees knock down power lines and 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 you actually have uh, just as large an impact um but with a different set of risks so we spent years since hurricane sandy uh, preparing for the water that might come, and then the wind came. Um, so I think I would agree with you that sustainability and resilience are in a better place than where we were back. You know, when we were having conversations about what a what a, a sustainable and resilient um, building would look like back in two thousand. Uh, but I think what we've learned from uh, the last couple of decades, in addition to the last couple of months, really um, in our equity. Um, uh, it's hard to call it an awakening. It's really reckoning, really, um, is that we have so much further to go. And, you know, just when we think the, um, our field of vision is, is sufficiently covering all the kinds of risks that we need to manage, we realize that there's still more that needs to be incorporated. And a lot of that has to do with dialogue, which is, you know, what we're here to do today. Completely concur. I think the 
uh, important stuff that's moving to the forefront. And I really got to applaud USGBC for their work on it very early, excuse me, very early on is the stuff around equity. And, you know, we always took a, an approach where everybody needs a place in, in the, the future that's going to be sustainable and that's going to be resilient. It needs equity in order to move forward and succeed. And I think that some of the equity issues that we're seeing right now is because other parts of society and other verticals, if you will, have not tried to be inclusive and, and moved in that direction. And I'm trying to do this in a way that doesn't have a political tone, but the, the reality exists that we don't have resiliency if we don't include equity. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And you know, one one of the really simple things that I ended up I wrote about this summer, sort of in the wake of uh, Hurricane Isaias, um, you know, I wrote about simple technology. You know, at the end of the day, when when all the other systems fail, what are the things that actually keep you going? Um, Alex Wilson, founder of Building Green, and um, uh, currently with uh, uh, Resilient. Um, the Resilient Design Institute um, coined this term and uh, that's now taken off on passive survivability. So in what ways are we designing buildings um, such that even without all the other infrastructure that we tend to rely on on a daily basis, they're actually structures that are going to keep us uh, healthy and well um, and safe really uh, during moments of disruption or, or prolonged uh, disruption and disaster. But you know, another simple technology that really leans into this equity conversation is neighborliness. You know, never uh, probably in the course of a year uh, do you have a better opportunity to understand the value of your neighborly relations than the day that your power or your water or your car you know goes out and and you're you're living without and the ability to lean on each other um, is probably the most effective of all of these other technologies you know we might build a smarter grid um, and we might build more resilient uh, net zero uh, uh, off-grid water systems which is what I was studying you were alluding to um, in my research we might do all of these things but at some point there's you know you can't reduce risk to zero it'll always be some percentage above zero. Um, and in those moments when, when the risks come to bear, um, where do we go and who do we rely on? And, you know, an equitable society would put us in touch with one another in such a way that we can all help each other and that we haven't, um, ostracized people into parts of our community or parts of our socioeconomic system such that they're actually out of touch with, or, or, or not connected to the kinds of, um, neighborhood support resources that we would expect in in a in a community that we would choose to live in. Um, so I I think there's some really interesting um, uh, evaluation or reevaluation of of what an, an a you know a resilient future looks like for this country um, and really the world um, when it comes down to just being better connected with one another. 
I think that's a coming together message that, you know, anybody can get behind, you know, you don't have to be political about it, but the coming togetherness of, you know, expressing our, 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 our vision for the future and doing so at the ballot box and, uh, and in a way that, uh, that we actually represent, you know, what we want from the future. And I think more than ever, we need each other. I think you, you hit on the really sort of nexus moment that collaboration is essential um, in, in the future. Let's move to, you know, we started talking about stuff that includes transparency um, in, in the betterment for buildings and society, et cetera. Um, you know, not a topic that you and I would typically talk about, but let's take a look at material transparency. We're seeing such advances in, in things like carbon accounting and stuff. Can you share your thoughts, Jeremy? Absolutely. You know, I, um, I had the pretty distinct and rare opportunity to attend the World Economic Forum earlier this year. I can assure you I was not invited as a dignitary underneath the tent um, uh, to hang out with a bunch of world leaders. Um, but I was uh, uh, around the periphery um, learning about, you know, what do global leaders come together to talk about? And yes, they talked a lot about climate. And in previous years, they'd actually spent a lot, a lot of time talking about public health and, um, and the potential for uh, a pandemic to take over the world and look at where we are now. Um, but a major theme uh, of discussion um, was about the circular economy. And if we don't have insight into the materials that we are uh, produce, developing and producing and circulating within our economy, it'll be very difficult for us to then, um, then to take each of those types of materials and the, and the technical and, and natural components of those um, materials that we pump into our system and, and circulate them again. So there's a, there's a necessary practice of uh, of companies and supply chains better understanding what's in their project, uh, in their uh, processes and in their products, and designing them for uh, for reuse and or repurposing and recycling. Um, and then there's uh, there's an equal uh, and opposite need on the consumer um, and uh, end user end. Uh, to understand the materials that are in flow and to design processes that can capture um, uh, the, the materials that are coming at them and, and put them into new circular models. So I think there's a, the transparency element um, is, is paramount in, in being able to make that transition towards a circular economy. Uh, and it's, it's something that I was excited to hear uh, quite a bit of talk about. I can't say it was happening on the main stage, but it was certainly happening on Main Street. That's you know, it's really great to see that these key things start to move forward and gain attention globally. Uh, you know, you did touch down on circular economy, and I think really when we look at stuff like that, and we need to see a connection uh, to equity as well then all of a sudden you start to have a need or potentially a desire um, which is around modern slavery. And with my team at Global Green Tag uh, International, we launched a uh, modern slavery 
Transparency Declaration. And, and what it does is it takes 10 established matrices that evaluate, uh, you know, an organization's or, or even an individual product's contributions to making sure that circular economy works with respect to uh, modern slavery. And, and really, it's equity and abuse, you know, and, and it identifies all those contributors and scores them. And, and basically, it's a declaration that now governments around the world are asking for, for organizations to bid on and participate in projects. Wow. Well, I mean, the, what you're talking about, Daniel, is, is, you know, is really core to transparency, right? So the, the, the core tenet is about getting the right information into the right decision makers' uh, hands so that more informed decisions can be made. And so, you know, we're talking about materials, whether that's, um, you know, different paints or finishes or construction uh, materials like co concrete and steel. Um, but the, the, the transparency equation, you know, could very much encompass things well beyond materials. Um, but it, being able to actually translate information about whether it's environmental impact or social impact, uh, as, as you're just describing, um, or potential for uh, resilience and durability, um, all of these attributes ultimately create an opportunity for a decision maker to make a more informed decision about which material or which product or which company, you know, is the right one to invest in. I think one of the things that we as an, as a industry or as a, as a group of, of, of a community really thinking about transparency have always had to contend with and will continue to do so is at what point is, um, you know, is there too much information? Uh, and will is being transparent with everything, just giving us reams of information to look at, or is there value in, you know, and I would argue there is, um, but is there value in simplifying that information into consumable, you know, bite-sized chunks? And that's, you know, often what we rely on uh, third-party verifications for, you know, whether it's a, a third-party label to be able to tell us um, that, you know, this this product or building or what have you is up to snuff or, uh, uh, an environmental product declaration that um, you know, generally summarizes a lot of the the environmental impact behind the particular material. It helps to simplify and streamline the decision making process. That you know, maybe 50 years ago we didn't have to think a lot about a lot of these things because our our world was smaller, um, uh, or at least our worldview was smaller. But now we recognize the, the the massive impacts of our of every decision, and we want to make sure that we have. Um, the information we need to make the right decisions about, you know, today's projects and then tomorrow's um, impacts. Yeah. And I guess as I transition to our next pillar, um, you know, I think in, I, can, I can share that we're really happy that um, Global Green Tag's product health declaration, their PhD, has been recognized globally within LEED for the materials uh, credits. Where that is really exceptionally different than other third-party certifications is that we also have a health rate, which is the healthiness in use of the product for the end user. And ultimately, 
we really need to make sure what we've installed addresses that in that a- attribute of wellness for them. And then the, the, the carbon. And, and we look for a balance between adds in equity and all these other elements. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, and I think, you know, what, you're, what you've just outlined really, I think, transitions us nicely into your fourth pillar here on wellness. Huh? So, you know, I know that you were uh, involved in and uh, while you were at USGBC, there was a lot of contributions towards the framework of the International Well-Building Institute's well program. And, you know, I'm a, a well AP and a well faculty member and was a member of their COVID task force and really a proponent of this because I think that a building should not only be resource responsible, energy responsible, but it also should be a healthy place for the occupants. Um, your thoughts on, on wellness and the wellness movement? Yeah, well, I th- I think it couldn't come at a more important time. We uh, might have had the luxury previously uh, to uh, sort of comp- compartmentalize the uh, the wellness of the spaces that we go to work in, and then the wellness of our homes. And spending enough time in either place allows us to forget that there's that too much time in any one of these places could add up um, to either. Uh, make you unhealthy or even just make you go crazy. But in 2020, we many of us who have had the ability to work remotely um, or even the ability to work, I should say, um, many of us are doing it at home and um, recognizing that wellness is, uh, is a core component of actually being able to perform at your work, uh, to be able to be present and um, and productive in in your um, in contributing to family life, and that your immediate environs actually play a, a really big role in being able to shift and uh, your mindset and your mental state and in, in being able to actually a- approach and attack these um, these daily challenges productively, or, uh, or or maybe it takes away from that opportunity. So, I think wellness in twenty twenty has has probably never been more acute. Uh, our awareness of it has maybe never been as, as clear. Um, and I think that's a, that's an opportunity to build on, uh, recognizing that it's not just, um, you know, the nicest office spaces or the nicest homes that, you know, really where wellness, uh, needs to thrive, but really we all need it. Um, and how do we get there? Um, so I think, I think there's a, a chance really for, uh, not just the design community and, and those involved in, in uh, materials and and, um, and production in, in the construction market, but really for the average everyday American and, and consumer to think about how and where wellness can really fit in, and in what role we you know we can play uh, to, to to get more of it. It's it's a it's a it's a constant challenge to make time for some of these things, and um, you know it's not all about our building materials and our designs, but it's also our approach to how we attack our days and and how we um, how we uh, dip into a, a pool of gratitude for uh, recognizing that um, you know this too this twenty twenty whatever it has been this too will pass. I I like the fact that you transition from a new construction 
to existing buildings and and what we need to do or, or what we can do. And I really like the alignment that uh, in the well health safety rating uh, that, that we've managed to formulate and codify with 21 elements of the operational or just occupying uh, what we can positively impact so that we uh, we make sure the place is safe for people to occupy. And, you know, it'll go beyond just wearing a mask and doing social distance. It's the other attributes that we took as global best practices and, you know, formulated in a manner that could could form this uh, well health safety reading that uh, now we're seeing people get in, engaged in. You know, we've seen it happen at Yankee Stadium, Empire State Building, uh, and, and several other places around the country. And we're going to see more of it uh, as a response to not just this pandemic, but overall health and wellness in general. And I'm really excited to see where this is going to get adopted globally. Yeah, me too. And, you know, just to, to put another um, uh, pushpin in um, something that you said there in terms of uh, how this year, this pandemic year has taught us something new about health and wellness. Um, those of us who used to uh, have a, a normally occupied building never had to really think about what under occupancy um, might do to uh, to impact our health and wellness, but I've been working with a, a bunch of water experts um, uh, on a, a guideline uh, developed by IAPMO and the AWWA on what health and safety uh, risks there are in under occupied and um, shut down buildings, um, given uh, what can what can go wrong in building plumbing systems. Um, because water that's not flowing is water that you know could actually something could could go wrong and and could harm you, and some of this was in um, was was within the the bounds of what I was studying last year and that we talked about when we were looking at net zero um, uh, water systems, basically water systems that could be uh, fed from the sky uh, or the ground and then fully recycled, um, and how uh, how buildings like that can think. Uh, creatively about solving some real water challenges. You know, most of us don't have to worry about it because we're on a, a public water line or um, we have access to a well uh, that's uh, healthy and safe. But in many parts of the world, you tap into the groundwater and um, it's got arsenic or the groundwater doesn't exist um, or the pipe supply system um, is intermittent um, or uh, is toxic in some way because of the service lines or, or uh, some chemistry uh, that's going on because you have inter, inter, intermittent supplies. Um, and so, you know, in a number of places around the world, um, we have a wellness question related to water, unfortunately, um, even in this day and age, which is why we have Sustainable Development Goal 6.1 about getting clean uh, drinking water to everyone in the world. Um, and yet, uh, what we can do is to think more creatively about how we can lean into um, uh, smarter water systems uh, that can keep us healthy. Uh, and so this idea of having um, 
off-grid and, and net zero systems uh, allows us to really test the boundaries of what's possible outside of our, you know, our more normal or traditional uh, methods for, um, uh, for uh, collecting water from the utility or from the ground and thinking really creatively about, you know, how do we actually keep health and safety um, uh, uh, on point for the expectations that we have for, for health and safety and health, uh, safe and, uh, uh, drinkable water in this country, uh, but do so in, in a way that actually allows for, uh, those that are in, uh, uh, areas where water is compromised to actually make the kinds of safe investments that they, that they think are, um, in their best interests and to, um, and, and to allow, you know, wellness uh, in water, uh, to, 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 th to, to expand because we're really, you know, in some places in the country, you're, you're running up against, uh, uh, sometimes toxic or at least unpleasant and, and sometimes dangerous water waters. And if we can't solve it at a community utility scale and you can't solve it from the ground, you know, how are we bringing, um, new technologies and new ideas, um, into the fold? And we have a lot to deal with, uh, and a lot to, uh, to still work on from a regulatory uh, perspective, but there's a, there's a wellness component of, of all of the uh, uh, of the topics that you talk about on this podcast, uh, and certainly what we've talked about today. I just mentioned the water one just because <laughs> it's something I'm passionate about and we've worked on before. Yeah. I like that we closed with that. Um, you know, I've collaborated with you in a, in a lot of, uh, ways and I, um, I'm thinking I want to extend an invite to join me again and try and get some people engaged, like, Maybe Dr. Weldon from Purdue and perhaps uh, Brendan from USGBC uh, in a dialogue around water. Um, in I guess I'll throw it out there for our Build for Impact listeners. Are they interested in hearing us do a, a panel dialogue around around water? Yeah, I get I, I guess if I'm uh, able to vote, I would say yes. <laughs> well, that means you're an invitee. <laughs> so in in closing, Jeremy, I'm not going to give you one major, but give us a couple of thoughts on what uh, what you feel have been great impacts in uh, in the, in the past and what you've observed. Well, uh, I mean, I have to say that um, not only personally and professionally, my my eleven years at the U.S. Green Building Council were a real blessing and gift uh, to me. Um, but I think the the reality of having organizations like the U.S. Green Building Council that facilitate um, interdisciplinary dialogue on really big, hairy problems. Um, feels like the the kind of thing that we just need a whole lot more of in this world. Um, and you could say what you will about, um, uh, you know, a particular credit or a particular, you know, version update or something like that, that um, always uh, elicits uh, criticism and feedback and things like that. But that's because we're constructively working together across a whole lot of really interesting and diverse and sometimes divergent um uh, professions and expertise um, to really solve something uh, important and, uh, for our own, you know, sustainability and uh, and and future. So I think this um, inter uh, interdisciplinary, cross-functional, um, uh, uh, cross-professional um, dialogue is probably one of the most important things um, that we can do. And I think 
um, you know, organizations like USGBC and many others have been really key in facilitating that. So I'd say that um, that's that's a key uh, bit of impact that I've observed and I've been happy to have been a part of. Um, I also think that the uh, the opportunity to be um, you know on the front lines of seeing what um, where some of the 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 work that's done by the green building community um, you know and, and seeing its impacts over time uh, is really key because we recognize that maybe from the get-go uh, we had a whole you know a vision of the future in mind and um, and we were we were all racing uh, towards that that horizon but we recognize that we may not have been sufficiently explicit at the role of equity uh, or the role of uh, of diversity um, in those discussions and that the outcomes that that are generated might actually be well and good and um, you know technically competent uh, but if they're not culturally competent um, we may not have actually solved um, some of our core problems so I think um, not just interdisciplinary dialogue um, but uh, intercultural dialogue uh, really I think allows us to take the so many tools that we already have um, in our toolbox uh, and at the ready you know we have technologies we have uh, we have uh, policy ideas we have all the the tools that we really need to solve a lot of these um, really important uh, problems but what we don't always have and, and I think um, we need so much more of is the the cultural and interdisciplinary uh, dialogue that can take those tools and actually put them to highest uh, their highest best value productive use and do so quickly because that's really what our future demands. Really great way to wrap it up. Um, you know, it's always so great to get together and dialogue with you, Jeremy. Um, on behalf of our Build for Impact listeners, thank you so very much for joining. To our listeners, please uh, send us comments, questions, and requests for potential future programs. Thank you again. Have a great day from Build for Impact. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks all. <laughs>